Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here, as always, with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we're going to enter the octagon of news. And probably the big news is, of course, the Israeli elections. And it looks like BB is back, baby. Is that right? Uh, that is correct. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and his uh, increasingly far-right uh, pals uh, have won Israel's election. Uh, lucky duck Israeli voters uh, got to vote on Tuesday. It was their fifth parliamentary election in less than four years. Uh, Netanyahu and company, uh, with the final results being counted, uh, appear to have won 64 seats uh, in the 120-seat Israeli legislature, which uh, is not a huge majority by uh, objective standards, but by recent Israeli standards is positively brimming. Probably means that there will not be a sixth election in four years or anything of that nature. Former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's triumphant return to power at the head of a right-wing nationalist and religious alliance. Yeah, they're back. Benjamin Netanyahu will be, he'll probably be uh, pegged as or, or declared designated Prime Minister next week. He'll have... I think four weeks is the Israeli procedure uh, to form a government. I don't think he'll need that long because, of course, his coalition is already very well defined and very far right, farther right than ever before. He the the this is the furthest right yes, government in Israeli history. Uh, yes, it's kind of. It's, uh, it, it, I don't want to say it's not even close, but it's it's quite to the far right. Um, yes, it's the the there was a surge in support for a, a, a party that's sort of a an amalgamation of a couple of different parties, but uh, that ran as a joint list called uh, Religious Zionism or the Religious Zionist List that includes uh, basically Kahanists. I mean, people who were, uh, you know, 10 years ago would have been marked as, as terrorists, essentially, or, uh, you know, far right, uh, too far right for, for polite society. Uh, they surged to uh, third place uh, finish after uh, Likud and, and the, uh, the party of current incumbent outgoing now Prime Minister uh, Yair Lapid, uh, which which came in second. Um, so yeah, I would say it's it's unquestionably the furthest right government Israel has had, I probably ever, uh, at least in, in recent memory. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it augurs exciting things to come, I think. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be grim. Things aren't going to look so good. It's um I mean I I I hesitate to say things are going to get a lot worse for the Palestinians because the fact of the matter is that the coalition, the anti-Netanyahu coalition that's been in power, uh basically used the Palestinians as a, a punching bag for the last several months to try and prove their toughness to the Israeli voters. Uh this is I think the bloodiest deadliest year uh, in the West Bank since the UN started keeping statistics of casualties in the West Bank. Uh, and of course, uh, Netanyahu hasn't been in power all year. So it's it's hard to know or hard to imagine how things could get much worse. Uh, but it's uh, certainly not going to get any better. That's for sure. And we'll have a special um, coming up on the Israeli election, so we'll talk about it more there. Uh, so let's stay in the region, Derek, and, and let's talk some more about leaders uh, and let's move on to Lebanon. 
Uh, yeah, this is just sort of a brief update for for folks who have been following the collapse of Lebanese politics and and uh, the, the Lebanese economy. Michel Aoun, uh, president uh, who had been president of Lebanon, uh, his term ended on Monday. The Lebanese parliament has not elected a replacement. They've tried, I think, four times at this point. Uh, they've failed all four times amid uh, just basic dysfunction. I mean, there's nobody. Um, none, none of the factions or neither of the two big factions have been able to uh, sort of put forward a candidate who can get majority support. Um, and they've been engaging in some games like, uh, you know, walkouts to deny quorums and things like that. Uh, so Aoun is out. Uh, there's no president right now. The powers of the presidency are not huge in Lebanon, uh, especially, you know, after the uh, civil war, the, the sort of authority of the presidency was weakened somewhat and some of his powers were given to the prime minister. But Lebanon doesn't really even have a prime minister at this point either. Najib Makati, who is the current uh, incumbent, is a caretaker. Uh, the Lebanese parliament hasn't been able to elect a government since uh, May's general election. So uh, they're, they're really without any executive uh, at this point uh, in the Lebanese government. So uh, yeah, fun times there too. Uh, just a continuation of, of dysfunction. All right, Derek, let's talk a little bit about the Danish elections. Uh, yeah, the, the Danish uh, voters, uh, also Lucky Ducks, got to go to the polls uh, on, uh, I believe, Tuesday, yes, uh, for a general election. Uh, it looks like uh, incumbent Prime Minister Meta Fredriksson uh, has managed to hang on to power. Her Social Democratic Party uh, won, I think, 50 seats, uh, which will make it the largest party in the next legislative session. Uh, altogether, the center-left-to-left block in parliament has enough votes uh, to support a continuation of what has been uh, essentially a one-party minority government with the support of other kind of left-of-center parties. Uh, however... Uh, Fredrickson did resign, uh, which is, you know, uh, somewhat pro forma on Wednesday in the wake of the election. Uh, and it looks like she is going to uh, try to form uh, a coalition that includes some parties to the center, to the right of center, uh, at least uh, maybe one, the moderate party, which is new uh, and did fairly well for a, for a brand new party. Um her inclinations are more to the center than to the left. Certainly she's um, uh, got some, especially on things like immigration and, and uh, you know, some other issues. She's been uh, a little more conservative than uh, I think most of the Danish left uh, would like. And uh, she wants, I think she wants a center right coalition partner uh, to do this sort of like, oh, you know, they're holding me back kind of things where she doesn't have to like uh, rely on the left and doesn't have to do what left-wing parties want. She can fall back on uh, a conservative coalition partner is the reason for her uh, kind of doing what she wants to do anyway. So uh, I suspect that's what's going on. Uh, anyway, I don't know how that's going to shake out. Probably she'll she'll be able to find at least one uh, right-of-center party to, to participate, uh, at least to support her or to uh, actually join the government and make it a coalition. Thanks, Derek. And we'll keep everyone updated with what's going on in Denmark. But why don't we move now to Ukraine? Uh, yeah, so uh, Ukraine, there's, uh, there's not a lot to say here. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but um, there was uh, an incident over the weekend. The Ukrainian military apparently, although... Uh, I don't. I still don't think they've acknowledged it. They undertook a drone strike 
on Russia's main Black Sea naval base in Sevastopol and Crimea uh, on Saturday, uh, probably damaged or maybe even fully disabled at least uh, one ship, the Admiral Makarov, uh, or Makarov, which uh, has been the Russian Black Sea flagship. Um, it's unclear how much other damage they may have done, but the upshot of this was that the Russian government announced immediately afterwards that it was uh, quitting or at least suspending participation in the Black Sea Grain Initiative, which is the deal that uh, the UN and Turkey brokered between Ukraine and Russia back in July to allow food exports to resume through the Black Sea, uh, primarily Ukrainian food exports, but it's also supposed to cover uh, Russian food exports. So this raised a lot of concerns, immediate concerns uh, about the effect it might have on global food prices and just, you know, food shortages in general, uh, especially in parts of Africa that are very heavily dependent on grain shipments uh, from this part of the world. The Turks and the UN decided to Kind of, kind of feel the Russians out. So on Monday and Tuesday, they 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 continued uh, operating under the the initiative as though the Russians had not withdrawn, and there were no problems. They were able to get ships in and out of the Black Sea and keep moving as before. Uh, on Wednesday, then very abruptly, the Russians, uh, after I gather some uh, talks with with Turkey. Uh, and claiming that they had gotten uh, some assurances from Ukraine about not militarizing the grain corridor. Uh, the Russians abruptly rejoined the, the initiative uh, on Wednesday. So really no harm, no foul, I guess. I don't know. I mean, the, the drone strike was a bit provocative, and, and there were a couple of days where there was some nail-biting about what would happen here. Uh, but the Russians are back in the deal, so it doesn't seem like there's going to be any long-term ramifications. Now, that said... The first 120-day period that the initiative was was kind of uh, mandated to, to cover expires on November 19th, and so there's going to be a lot of attention now focused on whether or not Russia will agree to renew the initiative, uh, and so far they're being noncommittal about it. They say they haven't... Uh, their argument is that they haven't gotten enough benefit from it, that the deal was supposed to also include uh, protections for Russian grain exports, for Russian fertilizer exports, and that that hasn't really manifested. These things are still being affected by Western sanctions. Of course, uh, the EU and the U.S. always claim that their sanctions are, are pure as the driven snow and don't affect things like food and fertilizer, uh, which we know is not true from other cases. Uh, so... You know, if the Russians don't feel like they're getting a fair shake here and, you know, if they feel like the corridor is being weaponized against them, uh, it's possible they will not agree to renew later this month. But but uh, we'll have to wait and see. So let's move to Pakistan, where Imran Khan was shot. I recently just saw uh, updated that he seems to be OK. But Derek, why don't you let us know what's going on and tell me if I'm wrong? Uh, yeah, the context for this is that uh, Khan and his supporters in uh, uh, Lahore decided to begin a march on Islamabad on Friday, which is intended to uh, kind of arrive in the Pakistani capital with a, a, you know this massive crowd of supporters and force the government, the current Pakistani government, to hold a snap election, to schedule a snap election. Khan, you know, was obviously you know had been prime minister. Um, at, at, at one time seemed to be uh, in good stead with the Pakistani security establishment, which uh, by and large has a, a veto over civilian politics or at least uh, asserts a significant amount of control. Uh, there was some kind of falling out. He then subsequently uh, lost. He was voted out of office uh, in a confidence vote. 
it's all kind of a little bit suspicious. Um, so this this march was being done to force a new election, and in a way that that sort of could be taken as provoking uh, a response from the Pakistani security establishment. So uh, as I say, they began on Friday. They ran into some. Uh, trouble along the way. I think a reporter died uh, in, in uh, some sort of horrible accident over the weekend, uh, and they paused the march. But then, you know, it was resumed. He was then shot uh, on Thursday, and I don't have a lot of details on this because we're recording this on Thursday, so it just happened. He was shot in Wazirabad uh, in the leg, in what his supporters are are calling a, an assassination attempt, which seems reasonable uh, to conclude. Uh, again, I don't have a lot of details here, but as you, as you said, he seems to be okay uh, health-wise, um, but obviously there are going to be a lot of questions swirling around about this, about whether it was just a lone gunman, whether it was you know, something uh, you know uh, under, undertaken by the Pakistani security establishment to try and get Khan out of the way. Um, there have been threats. Uh, I think the the interior minister, the country's interior minister, uh, made some veiled threats uh, about a very forceful response to the march uh, once it got to Islamabad. So this is a bit early for something like that. But there had been some threats made uh, about how the state might deal with this march eventually. Uh, so, you know, that kind of fits into a, a, a allegation that maybe this was uh, more than just a single guy who was upset at Khan for whatever reason. Um, as I say, this just happened today. Uh, details are still a little spotty, uh, but certainly something to, to keep an eye on. So North Korea seems to have been, quote, going ham this week. Derek, <laughs> let us know what's going on uh, over there. Yeah. Um, so uh, I would preface this by saying that the U United States and South Korean militaries have been engaged in what even to... Uh, m me, uh, which I just kind of like note these things and then move on with my life. But even, uh, to, to me, it seems like an excessive number of military drills, uh, in the last couple of months, at least. Uh, and of course, these are all because we've emerged from the pandemic and everything's sort of, you know, we're trying to all trying to get back to normal. Uh, these are all like, you know, the largest drills that the US and South Korea have held since 2019 or whatever, even before that. Uh, so they've just been like one on top of another. And, and of course, North Korea gets frustrated every time the U.S. and South Korea hold one of these drills. They usually fire off a missile or two to just as kind of a, a form of protest. Well, uh, the U.S. and South Korea uh, began another one of these exercises, an air exercise called, called Vigilant Storm uh, earlier this week, and the North Korean government really lashed out on Tuesday rhetorically. It called them, uh, called the drills a grave military provocation. Uh, it threatened uh, follow-up measures. It uh, said that U.S. and North Korean rashness, or U.S. and South Korean, rather, uh, rashness and provocation can no longer be tolerated. Very ominous-sounding language. Then on Wednesday, they fired off uh, no fewer than, I think, 23 missiles uh, over the course of the day, and then uh, also fired uh, about a hundred artillery rounds into the maritime buffer zone between North and South Korean territorial waters. Uh, this was serious enough that the South Korean military fired off three missiles of its own as a sort of uh, retaliatory action. 
um, there was at least one of this barrage of missiles landed within, I think, 60 kilometers of the South Korean coast. Uh, another one set off an air raid alert on a South Korean island, Ulungdo, uh, which is, you know, typically when North Korea conducts these tests, they fire uh, things off of their own coast land that land out in kind of international waters or in North Korean waters. It's rare that they do something uh so provocative is to fire things that land in South Korean waters. Uh, so this was a, an escalation. Thank you, Derek. Uh, why don't we move on to Ethiopia and the peace deal there? Yes. So this is uh, big news, actually, probably the biggest or at least most positive uh, thing we, we have to talk about this week. Uh, the Ethiopian government and the Tigray People's Liberation Front had been engaging in peace talks in South Africa mediated by the African Union for a little bit over a week. Uh, on Wednesday, they, uh, they came to an agreement to end their war, which is just days away from hitting the two-year mark. Uh, the deal, according to the Associated Press, which uh, s- s- uh, obtained a draft of the peace agreement that, I do- as far as I know, is, is basically uh, unchanged, like the final agreement was basically unchanged from this draft. The AP said that the deal included provisions to disarm the, the TPLF uh, for the Ethiopian government, for its uh, forces, security forces, to take over key facilities, airports, um, and, and infrastructure like highways throughout the Tigray region. Uh, the Ethiopian government committed to rebuilding uh, the basically shattered infrastructure in the Tigray region and to open the region up for humanitarian aid. It also agreed to remove... Uh, the terrorist designation that it put on the TPLF. But overall, this seems like a deal that has uh, been concluded mostly on the Ethiopian government's terms, which when you consider the, the, where the war stood, where the conflict stood uh, with Ethiopian and Eritrean forces kind of surrounding or, or kind of approaching Mekela, the capital of Tigray, it makes sense that the, the deal would be a little bit lopsided, at least in their favor. Um, the concern here, from what I can tell, is that... Um, essentially uh, that the agreement doesn't appear to address in a direct way the role that the Eritrean military has played and also doesn't appear to address uh, the role that regional security forces from Ethiopia's Amhara region have played in the conflict. Uh, that's, a, that's a pretty big red flag in terms of if you're looking for p- places where this could break apart, would kind of fall apart or break down, uh, that would be the big one, it seems to me. Uh, now, the, the Eritrean military probably won't be able to continue operating in Ethiopia without Ethiopian support. And there is a provision apparently in this, in the peace deal that says, you know, uh, all parties agree to kind of uh, stop engaging with outside actors that are uh, participating in the conflict uh, or third party actors that are participating in the conflict. But the, the, the issue of the Amhara forces seems to me to be a pretty thorny one. They are still occupying much of what, is or at least had been the western part of Tigray, which is a region that uh, the Tigray and Amhara have disputed for quite some time. Uh, and, and it may be somewhat thorny to try and disentangle that uh, moving forward. So I think that's something to, to watch out for. So let's talk about the M23 advance in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, yes. So uh, the M23 militia, which is predominantly uh, or is a Tutsi, uh, ethnic Tutsi militia uh, that's been on the move for several months now, uh, you know, kind of restarted its 
uh, its activities after going dormant for a number of years, restart its activities several months ago toward the end of 2021. Uh, it, made uh, some very quick gains in the region and then things kind of hit a lull again. Uh, it's been on the move again recently. It captured, uh, the group captured a couple of uh, towns in North Kivu province uh, over the weekend uh, that put it around 70 kilometers outside of Goma, which is the capital uh, of that province and a city that uh, during the M23's previous uprising many years ago uh, that they captured and held for quite some time. Um, on Tuesday, uh, the UN's peacekeeping operation in the, the DR Congo pulled its personnel out of a military base at Romangaba, which is about 45, 50 kilometers north of Goma, uh, having concluded uh, apparently that, that it's no longer, the position was no longer defensible, uh, which means the M M23 could, you know, be within 50 kilometers of the city uh, within, you know, uh, not too much more time. Uh, so that's, yeah, something to watch. Uh, tensions are are high. Obviously, residents of Goma are not happy uh, about the oncoming M23, you know, pr presumably what is, an, you know, an inevitable M23 attack. Uh, they're particularly irritated with the UN, which, uh, you know, must be said, uh, these peacekeepers have not been keeping uh, the peace very much lately. There was an incident late Tuesday where residents of Goma burned a number of UN vehicles in the city. Uh, so, you know, that's another thing to, to kind of watch out for. The government of Kenya announced on Wednesday that it will deploy about 900 soldiers as part of the East African Community's Regional Force, which is in the, the eastern DRC and is supposed to be helping the Congolese military deal with a, a number of uh, militant groups, but does not seem, as far as I can tell, to have uh, had much to do with M23. There's There's been, uh, I think, more emphasis on the Allied Democratic Forces, which is an Islamist group related to Islamic State uh, and some other things. But um, I, I don't know that the EAC uh, force has done much with the, the M23 conflict. But again, um, you know, if they if, if the group captures Goma, that's going to be a fairly uh, significant development. So, uh, again, it's just something to, to kind of keep an eye on. Thanks, Derek. And why don't we end today with some discussion of Brazil post-election and particularly the uh, protests that have been breaking out? Yes, these seem to be kind of uh, dying down, actually, which is... Uh, the update. If people listened to our election special earlier this week, uh, they would they will know that uh, former Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva is uh, now president elect. Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva he defeated uh, incumbent Jair Bolsonaro on Sunday uh, by a fairly narrow margin, but still you know uh, wide enough for it to count. Uh, Bolsonaro went quiet uh, all, you know, Sunday evening, he kind of retreated uh, from the press. And then Monday, he was quiet all day. Uh, on Tuesday, he finally emerged, uh, made a very perfunctory short statement where he didn't concede, he refused to concede, uh, well, uh, just didn't concede, basically, but he told his uh, protesting supporters to, you know, uh, 
protest peacefully. Uh, a number of them, truckers, had been blockading major highways across the country uh, in protest of the outcome. They were demanding that the military step in and overturn the, the result, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Bolsonaro's statement just basically called on them to find more peaceful ways to protest. These protests are illegitimate. Let's not lose the legitimacy of the pacific protests happening all over the country. He's since, uh, I think, given another statement where he expressly asked uh, his protesters, his his followers, uh, this was late on Wednesday, to end the blockades. uh, And they do seem to be fizzling out, according to uh, federal highway police. Uh, As of Thursday morning, there were about 76 either full or partial blockades still active, uh, which is down from 126 previously. And that was down from hundreds, you know, hundreds and hundreds that uh, were formed in the immediate wake of the election. So things seem to be dying down. Bolsonaro has given the go ahead for his uh, uh, his for his. administration to begin the transition process to Lula's team, uh, which is in Brasilia now, or has traveled to Brasilia uh, to begin that process. So it looks like Bolsonaro is not going to contest the outcome. He is going to go along with this, albeit grudgingly. He's clearly not going to just say that he lost, but he'll uh, kind of abide by the process. And, and you know, hopefully uh, the rest of the transition will be peaceful. Derek, you saw the news. You cited the news and you bag the news. Thank you so much, and we will see everyone soon. Bye.